2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. More than 50 years after its debut, a Charlie Brown Christmas remains among the best-loved holiday specials of all time. Two of the most memorable parts of the show are the scrawny but endearing Christmas tree, And the music, a marvelous score by Vince Giraldi. Atlanta drummer Jeffrey Bootser and keyboardist T.T. Mahoney have performed a Charlie Brown Christmas concert for over a decade now. And they're back with several shows around greater Atlanta, starting this weekend at the Earl. Later this hour they'll talk about the ever-popular appeal of Vince Guaraldi's score to the animated classic. First, the revered food historian and scholar Dr. Jessica B. Harris wrote of soul food, it's a combination of nostalgia for and pride in the food of those who came before. In the 1960s, as the history of African Americans began to be rewritten with pride instead of with the shame that had previously accompanied the experience of disenfranchisement and enslavement, soul food was as much an affirmation as a diet. Oprah Winfrey's network... OWN and Discovery Plus have partnered to create an original series that highlights the rich tradition and versatility of soul food. The Great Soul Food Cook-Off is a competition featuring eight African-American chefs. Each week, they create dishes inspired by the past and present of Black Food in America. Two of the judges from the competition join me now via Zoom, Eric Achapong and Melba Wilson. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us, Lois. Hi, Lois. We are so happy to be here. This is just so exciting because the show is dynamic and it's educational, and it's suspenseful. I mean, we are talking about a throwdown here. First off, though, I was wondering how each of you would describe soul food.
3: For me, soul food is food that evokes warm and wonderful memories. It's food that was really the food that people consider to be the bottom of the pit. It was the pig's ears, the tails, the bitter of the greens, which of course we know is the collard greens. And it's food that had to sustain us while we worked on the plantation. It's food that epitomizes history, class, sustainability, but it's food that also tells a story that resonates with its people.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree. I would say so food is innovative food. It's innovation uh, out of necessity. We, uh, to Melba's point, didn't have the most quality or the highest, uh, I guess, uh, lauded ingredients or parts of the animal. Uh, so through innovation and through necessity, and, and obviously needing to uh, sustain ourselves, we made these amazing dishes um, and that's carried on through tradition. So it's orally passed down. It's one that has a rich history and, and one that We hope, um, as ambassadors of this cuisine, we hope we're doing uh, as much justice as possible.
2: Okay, you both are rock stars in the field. Can you step back and each give us a little background on your culinary journey?
0: Yeah, i say for me, I started off <laughs> uh, guidance counselor. You have that conversation after school or high school, and you're, you're trying to figure out what exactly you're trying to do for the rest of your life, or at least for the next four years in college. And I always was in love with food. You know, I, I think back to When my mom and my aunts and uncles would make dinner, uh, whether it be on a holiday or Christmas, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, or even on a Sunday, you know, Sunday dinner, they always had a superpower to me—bringing everyone to the family, uh, everyone in the family at at one dining table at the same time—and I always admired that. So, in addition to like being in love with like the technical side of things, I always really just fell in love with the, the communal sense of what food does and what soul food is. And that's how I started. I, I really just kind of wanted to follow that path. And I, I fell into a rabbit hole of nutrition and, and public health as well. And the more you know, the, the better you do. Um, that was kind of a motto that I, I had and that stuck with me. And that's kind of led me up to this point with you now, Lois.
2: Oh, wow. Melbourne community and food certainly go together in your life. It definitely does,
3: Lois. And just like Eric, for me, food also started around my family. We would always venture down to a very small town in South Carolina called Hemingway, South Carolina. It's where my parents are born and where my grandparents had an amazing farm. So everything that we ate literally came from the farm. We now know the phrase farm to table. Well, before that phrase was even coined, that is what my grandmother was doing. I got to go out in the garden with with her oftentimes and pick the greens, the beans, potatoes, tomatoes. And we would take those back to the table. And that is where the magic started. The magic started as I watched my grandmother meticulously took these foods, these ingredients that I just seen come straight from her garden, prepare them for hours in her kitchen. And it's where we all sat together At the table, there was no television in the kitchen back then or in the dining room. And so family stories, history was told at that table around and over and over and over again. Every important situation in our family, be it a wedding, a birthday party, a a bridal shower, a baby shower, and yes, even a repass. All of the important moments in our family happened over and through food. So food was definitely a very important ingredient in our life growing up.
2: How did each of you react when you got the news that you'd be a judge, or when you were asked to be a judge on the great soul food cook-off?
4: For me, it was an honor. I think it gave me the recognition of all the things that I was doing and to be noticed and to be, I guess, looked at as somewhat of an authority to at least judge other chefs. And it's it's funny because you don't really know what you're walking yourself into. Um, I think I can maybe speak for Melbourne with this as well. I mean, we came in and we're judging chefs that are quite new to the game, chefs that have you know been doing this for a few years and the chefs that have experience for over 20, 30 years. So we're coming in very humble, but you know, you also know that you're judging folks that have soul food, and, and they represent soul food in so many different ways. We have chefs from California, from Atlanta, Georgia, from uh, Northeast. Um, so it's not it's not necessarily a monolith, you know, and we have to come in with that idea. Where um, the, the soul food that I know and I love and I grew up eating may be different from you know someone else's. So just keeping that in mind, um, it was very humbling to even know that we were, or at least I was, looked at to be someone who can judge properly and you know uh, fairly off that. So it was exciting, and then you know finding out that I was with paired up with, uh, with Miss Melba that kind of blew everything off the top for me. It was just you know such an honor because uh, her herself is such a staple in the culinary industry, um, especially in New York City and, and Harlem as well. So the pot of greens just got sweeter and sweeter, <laughs> like, you know? And then it just really kept kind of building into what we have right now, what you see on TV.
2: Yeah, she's a—Melba, I'm speaking about you so you're not here. You are legendary. I think it's our forefathers
3: that are and our foremothers that are legendary. As Eric said, I, I too— am humbled to be chosen amongst thousands. And of course, when I heard that Eric and I were co-judging, you know, Eric represents the young version and Eric carries the torch and we both stand on so many shoulders. So to hear that I was with the Greg, Eric <laughs> him, oh, my God, oh my God, and I've always admired him and, and, and loved him from afar, but to be able to sit next to him every day and to also be able to learn from him was truly amazing but when we talk about the other the other eight chefs in the room as eric stated they come from a multitude a plethora of backgrounds and um who's to say what's right what's wrong soul food is in our blood it is in our DNA, it is a part of our history, it is a part of our history, and it is our job to carry the cornbread, to carry the greens, the fried chicken, and to do it in a way that's encompassing, and to do it in a way that's respectful, but to also have our own take, our own twist, in our own terms. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're talking about soul food, you're talking about sass and
4: class.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You definitely see a lot of that in the soul food cook-off, without a doubt. What
2: can you tell us about how the chefs were selected for the the chefs who are competing were selected? You
4: know what? We really had no idea. And I think it was purposely done from the production side where because it's we're talking about a very not necessarily niche but it's a very tight community so you know chefs know each other you know and just so happened when we finally saw all eight chefs not only did some of these chefs work with each other in the past and some events but i you know i know you know chef chris for some time and i'm sure miss melba has known or at least been following some of these chefs that have been working as well so i think for the authenticity of the show they wanted to kind of keep things as pure as possible and they didn't let us know about the talent or whom or how many or you know where they're from or whatever the case is and i thought it was perfect because we really uh, came in as you know as unbiased as possible and I, I really do appreciate that so i didn't really know too much about the chefs beforehand but then obviously um with the six weeks that we were with them we found so much about not only their family where they're from we got to know their kids and you know some of their stories as well so It was a quick education on everyone. I think it was done as ideally as possible.
3: Yeah, I I totally echo that, Eric. We had no clue as to who the contestants were. And just as Eric stated, I think that was the right way to do it. This way we came in with no preconceived notions, Nothing. we didn't know anything. So when the doors literally opened, we were like, oh my God. And to Eric's point, yeah, some of them we knew, some of them we recognized, however, it was important for us to judge each dish and each chef on their own and what they presented before us at that time. And I think that we really did do an amazing job at doing just that.
2: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with the chefs, Eric Achapong and Melba Wilson, judges for the great soul food Cookoff on Discovery Plus. For people who haven't seen the show yet, can you tell us how the competition works?
0: It's uh, two rounds um, each episode. There's a sole starter and then there's an elimination round. Uh, so the Soul Starter is really just, I like to call it a fast twitch, just, you know, within 30 minutes or so. How much flavor, how much uh, story, how much technicality, and and really how much soul can you put into a dish um, in a short amount of time? And, you know, whoever wins that that challenge then gets an advantage um, into the uh, the elimination round where one chef is, you know, obviously taking out the of the competition with each episode. So that's how the format is ran. And we were able to not only judge from our seating tables, but we were able to kind of walk around and and kind of get a glimpse of where the cooks are at and what their process is, you know, when it comes to cooking greens or when it comes to cooking mac and cheese or whatever, honestly, that the challenge needed them to do. So it was cool. It was a nice little mix uh, of everything and and that storyline and seeing those chefs kind of compete within that format was uh, not only nice for us to kind of get a feel on, you know, how they are and how they cook and how they handle pressure, but then for us as well, like we, we got a really good understanding for ourselves as judges and understanding that this was a plate that was maybe cooked in 30 minutes. And if it had an extra 30 minutes, it would have been something different or, you know, um, whatever the case is. So I think it was a really good learning opportunity on both the judging side and the chef side.
3: Yeah. So this show is like no other. There has never been a cast of all Black chefs on television before. There has never been a stage for soul food that was set. There's never been a table set like this one before. So with this show comes amazing food, great stories, a lot of pressure, a lot of pain. And what it takes us down, it takes us down memory lane. There's no way to cook soul food without going back to the roots of Africa. There's no way to cook f- soul food without going back to the South. So it tells a story. It tells a story of a journey. And with that journey comes a lot, of bit, a lot of other ingredients. And those ingredients are spicy, they're salty, you know, they're savory. <laughs> but it does come with a lot of different flavor.
0: And Ms. Melba, cor- correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, we, we had the format and we pretty much followed that every episode, but there was also times where we kind of broke character. We broke, you know what I mean? And we, there was times where we, there was an education. I remember in the previous episode, Chef Alexander Smalls was there and he was saying something so profound where Cartier just like, okay, guys, I know we're in competition mode, but let's just break and Let's listen to the tutelage and the knowledge that um, Chef Smalls is, is offering for us right now. And, you know, it, it actually broke for the folks in, in the audio and the visual and the, the people in the background as well. Like everyone was just enamored with the stories and with the importance of what this show was. So, yeah, we had structure, but then there was also times where, you know, we broke that out. And I think that's, that's what happens when it comes to soul. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, something that is not necessarily organized. It's something that you feel. And, you know, we got a lot of that feel uh, through the show.
3: You're 100%, right, All right, You can't cook the food without telling the story.
2: Mm-hmm. And his stories are so amazing because he was a professional opera singer. Did he give you a playlist to accompany the food you, <laughs> you were judging? Well, I have to tell you,
3: that voice, believe you me, that classic. voice. And yeah, definitely Classic. But, you know, the pain, the story, the history that goes with the voice kind of pairs well with the food. Right, Eric? I mean... It, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, it's like a glass of wine when you listen to uh, Chef a <laughs> kind of Small speech You could have your meal and then listen to him. And he constantly just be speaking, you know, or just reciting the alphabet. And it's, it's just so poetic, really. <laughs>
3: yeah. And then we had Chef Millie, who's amazing. Uh, it's 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 a wonderful story.
2: I'm curious because we have a little bit of regional pride here half of the contestants are from the atlanta area do you think that there is a deeper southern connection to soul food
3: well me being from new york
2: i'm going to say no or <laughs> <laughs> well, then what well, let me phrase it this way what's the connection between the south and soul food outside of the obvious historic fact that people were mercilessly enslaved here.
0: Yeah, I think it's really just a, a testament of how strong the South, and especially, specifically Georgia, keeps these traditions. And you know, to, to Melba's point, you know, we, we might have all visited the South. We all know, obviously, the stories and the history of slavery and Jim Crow and, and all those other eras that kind of came and passed. But uh, there's also stories of uh, folks migrating out and and heading to California and heading to you know New York and you know still continuing with these beautiful traditions, these food traditions, but now they're doing it in a different region, maybe using slightly different ingredients, maybe you know the seasonality has changed as well. So I think going back to that monolith, like we had you know a, a chef from Oakland, California, who's cooking soul food, but she's cooking you know her her California staples and. Uh, she's staying true to that. And for her, that's her soul food. And really, there's there's nothing wrong with that. So I think it's a great testament to show how strong the South is. And with obviously, you know, four chefs that we're representing as best as possible. But I mean, I've had some great soul food in, in Melba's and that's right in Harlem. You know, I've had some great soul food in, in Minnesota as well. I have a great soul food in, in Texas. So it goes to show how Black people have not only traveled through the years, but then also have kept these traditions as strong as possible.
3: Yeah, Eric, I totally agree with you. You know, and I think back to my family stories of coming up north from a very small town, Hemingway, South Carolina, Wilson, North Carolina, as well as Andrew, South Carolina, just like they did in Africa, they brought a lot of their recipes with them. To Eric's point, you know, perhaps the ingredients may not have come from the ground like they did in South Carolina, but they brought a lot of their seasonings with them. And it was important to replicate this food that has sustained them here in the North. And they came to the North, why? In search of jobs. And so that they can better take care of their family members that were back in, in the South. However, a lot of the songs, a lot of the spirituals, a lot of their uh, church going habits also migrated with them here. And and that's why you have a lot of people that live in other cities, north of south. That's why you still have that Southern hospitality when you walk into their restaurants. There are a plethora of things that they also
2: brought with them. Eric, how do you incorporate your West African roots into your cuisine?
0: I think it's at this point for now, for me, second nature. I mean, I grew up with these flavors and with these dishes, you know, from my folks that came in, but then living around in New York City, uh, I was surrounded by not only African American and black folk, but Hispanic and, and so many other cultures as well. So I was blessed, Um, and now that I kind of look back at my life in retrospect, I was blessed to be not only in this industry and in this field, but then also to kind of pull uh, inspiration from from everywhere that I've lived. So I do it when it's necessary, I do it when it's right, I do it when it makes sense, but it's second nature. I I love the combinations of peanuts, and and, you know what I mean, and and smoked turkey, and, and rice, these are the things that staples that I cannot live without. Like I can't, in a week, I can't go out without eating any of, a, you know, one of those three things. Um, and then you just notice how ubiquitous these ingredients are and, and every other cuisine as well, specifically soul food. So, you know, it was, it was very easy for me to, to kind of hop in and hop out. But at, at the end of the day, um, you know, cooking soul food and, and cooking food from my soul, you know, involves, you know, cooking food that's uh, Southern based, but cooking food that's also West African based as well.
2: Mm. Melba, I saw on Instagram that you were listed as one of the 50 most powerful Ooh-hoo! women in New York. Right. Are you wearing your cape, your Wonder Woman cape <laughs> at the moment? Forget the chef's apron. You need a
3: cape now. I'm so humbled and honored. You know, I'm sort of like a horse with blinders. I don't look to the left. I don't look to the right. And I don't take time to marinate in those things, I have so much more to do. I have so much more I want to do. So many more lives I'd love to affect and to, to assist in change. You know, I look at the food insecurity that we have in this country, especially in New York. So while I appreciate the honor, and I don't want to sound ungrateful, there's so much more work to be done. And that's what I look at. That's what I look at.
2: Does Melba's have a program for feeding the food insecure. Oh,
3: totally. I'm, I'm on the board of God's Love We Deliver, which totally I'm in love with, as well as being a board member and a culinary food council member over at City Harvest. And both of these organizations are amazing in dealing with food insecurities in this city. So in lieu of me starting my own organization, these organizations do it extremely well. Being around for over 30 years, I I think it's important for me to lend my my name, my support and my efforts and my checkbook to those organizations, as well as to our community, Fridges in the Neighborhood and Food Bank, New York
2: City as well. Mm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz speaking with the chefs, Eric Achepong and Melba Wilson, Judges for the great soul food cookoff on Discovery Plus in Throwdown with Bobby Flay <laughs> on the food and oh listen to the chuckles. You won. You competed against Bobby Flay in the chicken and waffles category. Can you tell us what distinguished your recipe or the special ingredients for your chicken and waffles?
3: Oh my god. So um first of all I have to say this because it's probably one of the questions I get asked the most. Did I know it was going to be a throwdown? Absolutely not. Really? <laughs> no. They set you up so lovely and uh Eric being on the circuit, I'm sure he knows about this. I'd never done a cooking competition before. I'd seen Throwdown, but you know, it doesn't happen in Harlem. It doesn't happen to black girls and definitely wasn't going to happen to me. Um, but they set me up by telling me that it was a show called started here first. And because chicken waffles was born in, in Harlem um, and they heard that I had the best chicken waffles, they decided to feature quote, <laughs> end quote me. I chose to do my demonstration at Linux lounge because of the historical value of it. And as I am cooking Lois, In walks Bobby Flay. And I'm like, oh, my God, how nice Bobby Flay came to watch me. (laughs) Well, when Bobby Flay pulled up (laughs) beside me and put the table up and said, are you ready for a third? I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. But you got to be quick. I'm from Harlem. I know how to pivot. Right. So I'm like, (laughs) of course I am. And I have to tell you that that is one of the moments that have changed my life, changed my career one of the most humbling moments and um, you know, to beat an iron chef, Bobby Flay at spur of the moment, you know, it was just amazing. But my special ingredient, to go back to your question, you know, I'm like the home cooks. I'm like every mom that's out there in the kitchen. My son, right after Thanksgiving, he's an only child. So he pretty much told me what he wanted to eat. he woke up the day after Thanksgiving and said he wanted uh, waffles. So I looked in the in the fridge. The only liquid that I had in my fridge was some champagne. Not not <laughs> going not going into the waffle <laughs> batter. I had some eggnog that I had uh, made two days before and I had orange juice. So, you know, like we do, we improvise. Right, Eric? Whatever's in is going in. That's right. You know? That's right. That's right. So I, I made my waffle batter using eggnog. And, you know, my, my family being from the South, when my mom fried her chicken and my grandmother, we took a number 10 brown paper bag. Not only did we season the chicken, but we seasoned the flour and we put that chicken in that number 10, 10 brown paper bag. And we were like shaking and baking baby. So that's what I did. I did what my mom did and what my grandmother did. And voila, I slayed the
2: flame. Oh, I
4: love it. I (laughs) I haven't even heard that story. That was great.
2: (laughs) Wasn't he a wily one doing it that way? But look how relaxed you were, Melba, that you didn't know it was a throwdown. No
3: clue. But, we are you know, as I can tell you in the kitchen, we're always under fire, literally. Literally, Um, too, yeah.
2: (laughs) You know, with the way black chefs have been invisible, if not overshadowed throughout our history, what do you think it says about our culture now that you have these amazing reputations and abilities that are being showcased?
4: I think it's, it's about time you know it's not like you know specifically the chefs on the, on the show you know these chefs uh, the men and women didn't just start cooking last week last month they, they've been doing this for quite some time even the youngest chef has been doing it for a few years so with all the hard work that they've put in they weren't overnight successes and i don't think a lot of chefs that look like us especially that cook this cuisine aren't overnight successes so the fact that we get a little bit of recognition now um, it's great, but it feels like a long time coming. It feels like something that's definitely been in the works and, and and needed to kind of have the space and have the opportunity, like the Great Soulful Cookoff, to to really you know show this stuff off. So I'm just really proud to be a part of something that um, is exclusively black. You know, as far as the chefs concerned, as far as the judging is concerned, even their host. So that that right there just feels like something that Miss Melba can probably attest to this as well. You know, it's it's a great feeling, but. You know, it's been a long time coming and we, we definitely deserve this space and you know our food is as elegant and as uh, refined and as you know contemporary as any other cuisine, you know, it just unfortunately just had had the spotlight that it deserves. And the fact that these chefs are, you know, out here not only cooking and, and representing that, but, but also representing themselves and their their country and you know, in their in their city and their hometown. Um, it's a beautiful thing.
2: Oh, long time coming indeed, but It's uplifting as well that the time has come, finally. Absolutely.
3: Yeah, piggybacking on what Eric said, you know, we look back. I mean, we've always been in the kitchen. You know, we look back to Patrick Clark, uh, Leah Chase. I mean, I can go on and on and on. I mean, we've always been in the kitchen. We've just never gotten the recognition I remember there was an article in the New York Times several years ago, and it asked the question, where are Blacks in the food industry? And we've always been there. We've been quietly there. We've been behind the Michelin stars. We've been behind the James Beard Awards. We've just never gotten the recognition. So when you say breaking plates and glass ceilings, We've always done that, and it's past time that we get the recognition. So I'm elated, I'm excited,
2: I'm happy, but it's past time. Chefs Eric Achapong and Melba Wilson, judges for the great soul food cook-off. The show airs on Discovery Plus every Saturday through December 18th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.orgslash city lights. In a moment, the latest installment in our series, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear from Atlanta artists in their own words. Today, featuring Lacey Freeman, you're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words.
1: I'm Lacey Freeman. I'm an Atlanta-based artist who creates animal and pet portrait paintings. I like to create fun, original paintings of people's pets and favorite animals like elephants and hippos and uh, lions. Each animal gets a name and a fun story. I love the storytelling aspect of my work. Each animal that I paint receives a name and is painted in true portrait orientation, which gives the viewer a chance to face the animal and connect with them on a more personal level. And even though my work is inspired by nature, the focus is more casual, colorful, and emotional. I always dreamed of being an artist. When I was growing up, I considered myself to be creative and artistic, but I really didn't practice regularly. I had a job in the legal field for probably 10 years, and it took so much of my mental space and it didn't fill fill my creative needs. So when the opportunity showed for my husband and i to move from florida to atlanta we jumped on it and it was at that point in 2014 when i fully submersed myself into art and practicing regularly and i've been working at this ever since what i think really inspires me the most is the connection that people have with animals or want to have with animals Painting people's pets have become such a large part of my work in the past several years and lucky for me it's my favorite part of my job. People love their pets and I'm always so honored when a person hires me to commemorate their pet and that connection I think just drives me to keep going. I definitely think Atlanta has influenced the way that I create art I couldn't see myself living anywhere else. I love creating my art here and connecting with clients here. Atlanta has been very kind to me and I think it's just a great place for an emerging artist such as myself to live and work. There are so many places that I like to go to see new art. Spruill Gallery. I love all of the murals especially in Cabbage Town. If you're going to see them you've have to find a parking spot and walk all the way through there are so many places to see art in our city from the Beltline to the museums to the art festivals and neighborhood festivals and markets it's everywhere although i painted several murals back in 2016 i believe the last surviving mural that i painted is at the atlanta bike barn you can see it from the Beltline. it's a big moose head with bike parts hanging from his antlers
2: portrait artist lacey freeman and our series speaking of the arts more information can be found on our website wabe.org city lights coming up a charlie brown christmas is returning to atlanta and we'll check in with drummer Jeffrey Bootzer and keyboardist T.T. Mahoney. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. More than 50 years after its debut, A Charlie Brown Christmas remains among the best-loved holiday specials of all time. Two of the most memorable parts of the animated classic are the scrawny but endearing Christmas tree and the music, a marvelous score by Vince Guaraldi. Atlanta drummer Jeffrey Burtzer and keyboardist T.T. Mahoney have performed a Charlie Brown Christmas concert for over a decade now. And they're back with several shows around Georgia, starting at the Earl on December 10th. Before they hit the stage, they join me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Life. Thanks, Lois. Great to be here. Hey, Lois. This is your 14th year performing the music of Vince Guaraldi's Charlie Brown Christmas. How did this show get
5: started?
2: Boy, that's hard to believe. 14th year.
5: We almost missed last year, but we um, the Adult Swim guys came down and we did a virtual concert from the Earl. So it felt somewhat normal. So that was cool. You want to talk about it? Uh, how we got started, Gigi?
6: Jeffrey and I, somewhere back there in the mid-aughts, I guess, started doing these sort of one-off tribute shows. We did them for Tom Waits and Nick Cave, Leonard Cohen, people kind of of that ilk. You know, we just found that we, we really enjoyed them and had a natural chemistry doing that and, you know, bringing in different singers and sort of a, a larger musical family that would work on these. And uh, one of the ideas that got batted around because, you know, everybody's got a, a real connection to the... To Charlie Brown, obviously, but Jeffrey especially, and he can describe that in a minute, but because he had that connection, he always wanted to do Charlie Brown. And so we, like so many things I've found in my creative life, you know, the idea was just, oh, it'll be a one-off, it'll be a few of our friends will come and we'll do it and it'll be fun and that'll be that. And it's really become something much more than we certainly anticipated when we started, you know, something that's just really neat for us. And uh, from what we gather from the community of people that's grown up around it, kind of a special part of people's holidays. So It's been kind of amazing and unanticipated.
2: Yeah, in fact, your Charlie Brown Christmas has become a Christmas staple in Atlanta. In what ways has the show evolved over the years since you two began?
5: I think the um, first year, we really just played the record and we didn't really think about... <laughs> of it, like ending big or you know going out on a high note. We we, we weren't showbizing it; we just played it. So it, the the record ends on kind of a quiet, uh, you know, solemn note with the Christmas song by Mel Torme.
3: Chestnuts roasting
5: on an open fire,
6: Jack Frost nipping it.
5: You know, we've added something at the end, and so I think it ends on more of a positive party note. (laughs) That's changed a lot.
2: Oh, and I guess... No spoilers here.
5: <laughs> well, I think anybody that's gone knows that we do a lot of the songs from Phil Spector. And so uh, the Phil Spector Christmas gift to you. We have a bunch of guests that come up on stage. The show's just gotten a little more involved in terms of, uh, you know, the amount of people that play in it and the opening acts. And
2: What do you think it is about Vince Guaraldi's music that encapsulates the spirit of Christmas?
6: Boy, there's a real kind of quietness to the and a meditative quality to the album that actually, in a weird way, runs counter to the sort of frenetic tempo of the month of December, you know, with shopping and holiday parties and different events that people feel like they need to go. You know, it seems like everybody I know, you know, is pretty much almost kind of booked solid for the month. You know, I don't, I remember it being a little bit slower paced when I was young. And I think, especially if you go back a little before. I was born back to the genesis of the Charlie Brown specials. It was a little bit of a different time and a slower tempo in life. And and I think there's maybe a hunger for that to some degree beyond uh, the basic nostalgia of it. I think it reflects a side of Christmas that's uh, less in evidence maybe than it ought to be. And that's the sort of quieter, more contemplative side.
2: Listening to you speak the song, "Christmas Time is here. Just started playing in my mind. Is that the tempo and the mood you're referring to? Sure.
6: That's, yeah. I think that the that ballad is uh, in some ways uh, almost at the center of the album because it's one of the Garaldi originals. Uh, yeah. And, and it does sort of have that open and expansive uh, feeling to it.
2: More laid-back, or at least not frenetic pace of some Christmas songs we've become accustomed to hearing.
5: Yeah, the Paul McCartney um, simply having a Christmas time never reduces any stress for me or Mariah Carey. So those those sort of song <laughs> hypers, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, pop Christmas songs they. Um, it's sort of the antithesis of what you're talking about. And yeah, I think I think the record is a good reminder to slow down. Yeah, it's like you said, it's nice to just like sit and look out a window and <laughs> not have to think too much and not stress. And yeah, that's what the record has always done for me. It's always a you know, good anecdote to Christmas stress.
2: How does it feel to be returning to the stage live this month? Do you have a different or newfound appreciation for this show?
5: You better believe it. Yeah, I certainly missed
6: it. Yeah. I think we said earlier we were really fortunate to be able to present it at all this past year due to the extraordinary efforts of the Earl to have live streaming capability, and that was sort of like uh, you know something I didn't have a whole lot of experience in, which was the feeling of performing in basically like a television studio. Bunch of cameras.
5: We had the guys pumping a laugh track though in applause, remember for us. Uh, <laughs> it's just not quite the same. No, no.
6: <laughs> Gotta tell you. <laughs> so obviously we're really, we're, you know, beyond excited to be able to reconnect with people on this more human level. Yeah, it's really exciting and um, yeah, I I'm, I'm looking forward to it.
2: You have several performances this month at the Earl, of course, Mad Life and Forty Watt. The Earls' performances are for people 21 and older. The other two venues are for all ages. Even though you're playing the same music, what's different about these shows?
5: You know, we're rock guys. We play jazz too, but I just mean we're like more from the rock world than we are the jazz world. So we were just like booked a club we were familiar with. I wasn't thinking about age restrictions the first year. I think the show is pretty much the same. Um, We don't cut too loose with our jokes or anything, the grown-up ones. I mean, I think it's about...
2: Okay, so the shows for families aren't abbreviated in length?
5: No, not at all. It's the same show. Um, There's a little more space at 41. You know, I don't think those are going to be as crowded because outside of Atlanta I don't think we have like the same draw we do and so they're a little more spacious and Mad life is seated you can get a brownie Sunday while you're watching us that's probably the big difference Ooh. I think if I was going to the show I would go I would go to, to Mad life to see it because I like brownies
2: a brownie is my idea of the perfect food. Yeah,
5: same thing.
2: Yeah. And it's biodegradable. I mean, you don't need utensils, <laughs> you don't need a napkin or a plate. Brownie is special. Oh, I think very worthy <laughs> of Vince Garaldi and Charlie Brown Christmas. The Frigidaires will join you both in performing songs from The Ventures and Beach Boys Christmas. For those unfamiliar with Ventures, they're considered one of the great surf bands. How would you describe their Christmas songs?
5: It's pretty incredible. They're all mashup songs. So it'll be like the rhythm from a Beatles song or from Tequila with a Christmas, a very familiar Christmas melody on it. So even when people think they don't know the record, they totally know the record. And it is Notches in right at number three under Phil Spector and Charlie Brown for me. Like, I love that album so much.
6: Absolutely. It's a super, super, super fun record. You know, we find that, you know, at, at these shows, you know, they, they sort of warm up with that and the crowd is sort of at a fever pitch by the end of that. And then <laughs> and there's a way in which we sort of bring the energy down for, but, you know, as I, Jeffrey said earlier, we bring it back up for the very end. Uh, but it's sort of a curious, emotional arc for the evening. I'll, I'll say that.
2: It is bizarre, yeah. Those guys really rock out. I mean, thinking about a surfboard and someone wearing a Santa hat or a Santa's helper hat, you know, that's pretty mind-boggling. We were in Florida one year over the Christmas holiday, and that seemed so strange. You know, palm trees, so surfer band, yeah, this this will be interesting. For which song from a Charlie Brown Christmas do you receive the most praise or feedback?
5: I think probably Christmas time is here because it's it's in the middle and the the girls come out and sing on only about three or four of the Charlie Browns or three I think and it's like their main vocal one and on the record there's like a long instrumental one I think it's like five and a half minutes and then like a shorter vocal version and we kind of like, do a vocal version with instrumental breaks and I don't know I think that one usually gets a lot of applause and people seem to like that one.
6: Our singers are the best just really beautiful crystalline clear soprano voices it's just it's beautiful
5: Yeah I would like to say that like you're talking about the evolution of the show the first few years I mean we had different singers every year like one or two people would swap out we've gone through like three bases, and we really locked into a solid group now including the opening Act like with the Frigidaires, like because we've had several different ones, and they've all been great. Many of them have like moved to Nashville and become stars, but <laughs> but we've really
2: we, wow. <laughs>
5: well, like Liz Brasher's done really well, and um Rachel Roland, yeah, a lot of them have moved on, you know, and they've they've done really well and got on labels, and but um, our crew right now is like we've had this solid crew for four or five years, and it feels good to have like the same people. N- nothing against anyone we've ever played with; it's it's always been fun, but it's nice. Seeing the same faces every year, and us all kind of being locked in, and not having to rework up stuff with new people. So, and with Chad too, like Chad shivers and the frigid air, is opening up, like just not having to think about <laughs> booking someone else. Because we found that people really like that when they wouldn't play, people would be like, "Where's Chad? Where's Chad?" Because <laughs> like a couple of years, we'd give them a year off, and they'd do their show separately, and we would book someone new. But we found people really like the show as it is, so we're trying to keep that.
2: Well, Christmas time is here. We know when T.T. T. Mahoney and Jeffrey Bootser play a Charlie Brown Christmas. Thanks, so very much.
6: Thank you, Lois. It's always a pleasure to talk
2: with you.
5: Yeah, thanks, Lois.
2: Jeffrey Bootzer and keyboardist Titi Mahoney. They're performing a Charlie Brown Christmas at the Earl December 10th through 12th. They will also perform on December 14th at Mad Life in Woodstock and December 16th at 40 Watt in Athens. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Death Leopard, drummer, and visual artist Rick Allen shares details of his new exhibit, Wings of Hope 2021, on view at the Wentworth Gallery in Phipps Plaza. Plus, we'll hear about the Theatre for the Very Young's performance of Knock Knock at the Alliance Theatre. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drones. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or... Check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Rights. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR.